This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, August 2nd, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. When you root your political philosophy and individual liberty, you commit yourself to defending the individual against a wide variety of encroachments. In The Individualists, authors Matt Zwolinski and John Tomasi present what they cast as the untold story of how the emphasis of libertarian thinking shifted in response to various forces. I spoke with co-author Matt Zwolinski last month. This is a great way to characterize libertarianism broadly because so many people are what I like to call I got mine libertarians, which is everything that that I am personally invested in is morally valuable. Uh, the things that I own are definitely mine. And hey, good luck to you. And that's not really how I view libertarianism. I view libertarianism as the placing the value of the individual as foremost. That That's the smallest minority. These are the people we need to be looking out for. Everybody as an individual without regard to almost any other uh, attribute they may have. And, and that seems to me to be the sort of the foundation of analysis for trying to decide whether or not an idea fits within libertarianism or not. But, you know, as you say in the book, libertarianism has a long and widely varying history about what ideas were considered acceptable, even worth celebrating, and other ideas that have really only come along in the last hundred years or so. So what would shock contemporary libertarians to learn about people who called themselves libertarians and and we should be clear celebrated a good bit of what we celebrate today but what did they think at you know 100 150 years ago that that might surprise us today i think the most surprising group of libertarians from a contemporary perspective are actually the american libertarians in the 19th century so most people know libertarianism through these major 20th century intellectuals like Ayn Rand or Friedrich Hayek or Ludwig von Mises. Not a lot of people, though, are familiar with the 19th century American libertarians. People like, for instance, Benjamin Tucker, uh, people like Lysander Spooner. He's a little bit more popular. Uh, and then you get some really obscure people like Victor Yaros, for instance, a Russian refugee. Uh, and they held some very surprising views such as, for instance, Benjamin Tucker uh, referred to himself as a socialist and thought that libertarianism, as he understood it, was perfectly compatible with socialism. Tucker thought that uh, many forms of um, rent were deeply unjust. It was unjust to charge people for use of the land, uh, that many profits were unjust, that uh, charging interest was unjust. So some very surprising economic views compared to what you see in the 20th century, where libertarianism is primarily about a celebration of the free market and opposition to socialism. Was there was there opposition to markets? There was deep suspicion of markets among libertarians in the 19th century. And you still see a little bit of that today, though it's it's somewhat fringe. But it makes sense if you stop to think about it, right? So libertarians support markets for a reason. They think that markets are good because they reflect a respect for individual rights. If you leave people alone, if you don't violate their property rights, uh, then what they'll do sort of naturally is 
truck barter and exchange. They'll set up markets on their own. So respecting markets is just a byproduct of respecting individual rights. But if you look out in the actual world at existing markets and see that a lot of what's going on in existing markets isn't merely individuals going peacefully about their lives, trading freely with one another, but rather governments sort of enforcing these artificial set of rules upon people, propping up some businesses and enterprises, stifling others, right, and creating a, a form of commerce that's, that's not natural, but highly artificial, that's not voluntarily, but highly coercive. Then if you're a libertarian and you're looking at those kind of markets, you're going to think that's not what we signed up for. We're for free markets, not for this crony capitalism, right? That was something that a lot of libertarians were talking about you know, 15 years ago and the government response to the financial crisis in the United States. But that kind of rhetoric, that kind of distinction between the markets we see in the real world and this ideal of freedom is something that libertarians have been talking about since the 1840s, 1850s. Now, before we started recording, I asked you where libertarians sat in the 19th century in relation to someone like Henry George, who we should note advocated essentially attacks on land as the primary way of funding government. Right, right. Yeah, he was a huge figure in the late 19th, early 20th century, just enormously popular and influential and is almost entirely forgotten today. But he's an important figure today, I think, still, because he, he highlights something really interesting and central about property rights. And for libertarians, property rights are often viewed as the foundational concept in their world, right? Like we're, we're all about the defense of property, not just in, in stuff, right? Money and houses and things like that, but, but in our own person, right? Self, the idea of self-ownership is often thought to be the root of libertarian philosophy. But what George pointed out was that it's not clear that even if you're committed to property rights in yourself and in your, in your labor, right? The work that you perform, that that gets you to property rights in the land, because after all, you didn't make the land, right? The land itself is kind of this free gift from God. And so properly belongs to all of mankind, not just to whoever got there first and put a fence around it. So you're entitled to, you know, what you produce with the land. If you till the soil and plant some yams, right? You can, you can take the yams and eat them or sell them, but like you don't get the raw value of the land itself. And so to tax that raw value and use that to fund the government, George thought was perfectly compatible with libertarian principles. And even if you accept the notion of whoever got there first is the owner, well, that's a deeply pr problematic position to hold in contemporary United States of America. It is, right? It's not clear that that, that gets you anything like a defense of the status quo. So, I mean, the, the libertarian commitment to property rights, like what that means in practice in a world that's filled with deep and longstanding historical injustices is really, really unclear. And I think libertarians would do well to think a lot harder about what their libertarian principles commit them to in terms of redressing historical wrongs. Do we just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, well, everybody who was harmed is dead now, so there's nothing we can do about it? Or do we make some efforts to correct for those injustices, knowing that any efforts that we make are going to be highly imperfect and they're going to end up harming some innocent people who didn't themselves participate in those roles. I'm at least a little encouraged if you look at it, go to Google Maps and look up a map of Oklahoma today, it uh, 
uh, spells out a little differently the property lines uh, than it did maybe three or four years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, you, this is more of an intellectual history, but of course, some ideas won and some ideas lost. You know, as we turned into the, the 20th century, who had won and lost in terms of what came to define the substance of libertarian thinking? So one of the major themes of the book is that in the 20th century, the face of libertarianism changed quite dramatically relative to the 19th century. In the 19th century, libertarianism was seen as a very radical, progressive force. Bastiat, Frédéric Bastiat, one of famous 19th century French libertarians, famously sat on the left side of the French assembly next to socialist anarchists like Proudhon. Whereas in the 20th century, libertarianism came to be seen as a kind of right-wing view. You know, Cato Institute is still described today as a conservative think tank by a lot of people who ought to know better. But despite our frequent emails to editors at various newspapers throughout the United States. The take we have on this is that over the course of the 20th century, libertarians and conservatives came together because they had a common enemy. They were both opposed for somewhat different reasons to socialism, both international socialism and creeping socialism at home. And as long as socialism existed as this kind of existential threat, that was more or less enough to keep libertarians and conservatives in the same bed. But then 1989 comes, the Berlin Wall falls, and the philosophic and economic foundations of socialism had crumbled long before that. And so you look around today and there just aren't that many people still advocating for socialism in the sense of central direction of the entire economy. You get people like Bernie Sanders who call themselves socialists. You get countries like Norway that some people call socialists, but these are market economies. They're not socialists. They're market economies with a heavy dose of regulation in a welfare state. So the socialist threat is gone. The thing that held libertarians and conservatives together is gone. The thing that kind of held different branches of libertarianism is gone. And so now libertarianism is this kind of crisis of identity, sort of wondering, you know, if we're not, if we can't define ourselves by being against that, then what are we? What are we for? Are we a conservative view? Should we be aligning ourselves with the Trumpers in some kind of way? Are we nationalists or are we internationalists? Uh, are we, what's our take on the Black Lives Matter view, movement? Is that something with which we should align ourselves uh, or distance ourselves from? It's just splintering off into myriad directions. And I think we still haven't found the issue or the personality or the idea that's going to provide that sort of unifying force that kept libertarianism as a somewhat coherent ideology for most of the 20th century. So, it, you know, to the extent that personalities do play a role here, I'm thinking of people like Henry David Thoreau, William Lloyd Garrison, Frederick Douglass, at least in the American context as people who were, I think, galvanizing, powerful, and hard to dismiss voices for a more, a more just society. And of course, the focus of Garrison and Douglas, of course, was this slavery mess has got to come to an end because this is a, a massive group of people who are literally disenfranchised from even the most basic liberty. And that, but, but that fight having been won mostly sort of for a long time, what, what did that cause a splintering? 
I mean that that was that was a force, right? When it was in, when slavery was in existence, that was essentially the force that brought libertarians together. A lot of the early libertarians in 19th century America came out of the abolitionist movement, and a lot of people were in the abolition movement, movement were eventually led by the logic of their position to to these radically libertarian conclusions, right? Like we thought, okay, like look, slavery is unjust because it's the coercive author- imposition of authority by one human being over another. Well, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like government in general. So if I'm opposed to slavery for those reasons, maybe I ought to be opposed to government as well. So for, for a while, slavery did serve this kind of unifying force in the United States. But as you say, once slavery went away, so too did this kind of growing libertarian movement. And libertarianism essentially died off for about 40 years in the United States, there really wasn't much of a libertarian movement until around the 1930s when you had the New Deal, which looked to impose this, this kind of quasi-socialist form of government uh, domestically. And then not long after that, you had international socialism as an expanding threat. And that's when you started to see this tremendous and very fast rebirth of libertarian ideas. I mean, there were years like 1934 where you just look at the libertarian books that were published in that one year and it just, it blows your mind how quickly and how, how simultaneously all these ideas were occurring to people. Who were in that, in that time period, who were some of the more influential, uh, libertarian thinkers? I mean, Rose Weiler Lane figures prominently in, in my mind, if only because she was such a good writer. Rose Wilder Lane was was an amazing influence. Isabel Patterson, uh, of course, is another. And then, of course, there's Ayn Rand as well, who is coming onto the scene with the Fountainhead in the 1930s and 40s, and uh, later with her Werther Alice Shrugged. But you had other obscure, more obscure people like Albert J. Nock at the time, who was kind of popularly obscure, like not a lot of people know his name, but he had tremendously influence on a number of intellectual elites. William F. Buckley, for instance, regarded Albert J. Nock as one of his intellectual mentors, though I'm not sure Nock would have approved of the of the development of his people in that particular case. I will say that if you have a bright young, this is for our listeners, if you have a bright young teenager that you know, our enemy, the state, is an excellent gift. Absolutely. And if you, and if you really want to geek out his, his biography, Memoirs of a Superfluous Man, is, is, is quite fantastic. So I've been reading this book, War by Other Means, which is sort of about the, not just pacifists, but people who were broadly opposed to war, primarily through people who wanted to protest that nonviolently. And so you have a large group of people who were broadly opposed to war, uh, many of them self-described socialists, many of them self-described libertarians, many, many of them self-described sort of old school conservatives, uh, or as we would say today, old school conservatives. But that seemed like that ought to have been a more galvanizing force for libertarian ideas. It was to an extent. So for instance, in the United States, there was a pretty significant group of libertarians and socialists and varied others united in their opposition to colonialism and in particular the Spanish-American War was a was a big galvanizing point you know once once you get to the 1930s and 1940s you see that alliance kind of emerging again in opposition to World War II and you saw that again in the in the late part of the the 20th century with the Vietnam War 
and with the so-called war on terror that extends to this day and even to the, the war in Ukraine as well. It's a complicated issue for libertarians theoretically. And if you look at what libertarians have had to say in their writings about military conflict, you get a lot of mixed and not obviously compatible ideas, right? So on the one hand, libertarians believe in self-defense, certainly individual self-defense, right? So if A is aggressive upon B, then B has the right to respond in kind. If A is aggressive upon B and C happens to be standing nearby, then C also has the right to come to B's defense against A. Things get a little more complicated, though, when C is not an individual, but a country. So if Russia invades Ukraine, what can the United States permissibly do? Anything the United States does is going to be done with taxpayer dollars and with a military that didn't necessarily sign up for that kind of thing. So is it permissible for C to use other people's bodies and stuff to come to B's defense, or are we only entitled to use our own bodies and stuff? And if so, yeah, then you know a lot of other complicating questions come up about what kind of force we're entitled to use, how careful do we have to be about not targeting civilians and so forth. You know, libertarian war for libertarianism is a, is a tricky but vitally important subject because it's it's that one area of life where we think that the use of force, deadly force against individuals, is not only permissible but expected. We have seen the rise of, and and it, it may well be at its peak right now, or it may have already passed, national conservatism, which is this sort of broadly, based on everything I've read, seems like a very not particularly liberal conservatism that seems like it's always been there, but is having a bit of a moment right now. And then in response to that, in part, we've seen a, a broad push uh, very recently, like in the last few weeks, of freedom conservatism, which seems to be more amenable to libertarian thinking because it seems like all the national conservatives really hate libertarians, for good reason, by the way. And so I guess to the extent that libertarians ought to respond and respond with you know, a typically intellectually honest critique and appeal to people's minds what might that ought to look like? Yeah, this is this is a big issue. Libertarians, the alliance between libertarians and conservatives has always been an uneasy one. And the issue of nationalism has always been one of the sore points in that relationship. Because libertarianism, historically speaking, is not a nationalistic ideology. It is a cosmopolitan ideology, the, the meaning that libertarians believe that the sort of rights that they ascribe to individuals, the rights to self-ownership, the rights to property, the rights to free trade and free movement, these are not rights that inhere in people because of their nationality, because of their race or their sex or their class or their location on the globe. These are rights that inhere in people because of their status as human beings. And so, therefore, these are rights that inhere in all people everywhere. And these divisions that we have drawn between people by means of political borders are largely arbitrary and coercively imposed and not, by and large, anything that deserves terribly deep respect. So libertarians historically have been 
advocates of free trade, not just because it's good for us, right? Like the, the argument isn't America should have free trade because that's going to boost American economic productivity. The argument is that we should have free trade, yeah, because it's good for us, but because it's good for everybody because it's it's freedom, because it's it's what you get when you respect people's rights and allow them to do what they want to do in the economic sphere. For the same reason, we ought to have open borders. You don't have to let people into your house if you don't want. You don't have to hire people in your business if you don't want. But what you don't have the right to do is to stop other people who live near you from letting them into their house or hiring them in their business. That's That kind of toleration for other people's choices is just part of the package of liberty for libertarians. And all these discussions are great. I love talking about ideas and what is permitted and morally and that that sort of thing and un, under what framework we use to to make those make those judgments but whenever i have a conversation with somebody who is you know maybe more partisan political partisan i can i will ask often what's the principle at work here and that pretty much brings the conversation to a close and and so as useful as all that is, I, I wonder, you know, what is the, there is no end game, you know, for libertarian ideas as, as I've experienced them. It is just to keep the ideas afloat, keep that torch burning, uh, for the next generation. You're just passing it on. Yeah. And that, that's, that's sort of how I, I feel about what the task is. I think that's that's right. You keep the ideas afloat. You keep you keep the remnant alive in in Nokian terms, and you have, you know, the the goal, the end game isn't that we're going to get somebody running for Congress or president or even state senator uh, who who is the pure personification of libertarian ideological purity. That's not going to happen. But what you can hope to do realistically, I think, is move the needle. You can shift the Overton window, right? You can expand the range of possibilities and you can put the policy solutions out there so that when the moment comes, right, when we face a banking crisis, when we, when housing becomes an issue, right? And we're wondering like, why is it that like California can't build houses fast enough to, to keep its population off the streets? Libertarians are there with an answer that we've done the work already to analyze those issues, to diagnose the problem and to come up with some proposed solutions. And so now yeah, are we going to get a total win? No, but like maybe, maybe we can be in the right place at the right time so that when the crisis comes, there's not just a socialist or an interventionist solution at hand, but a libertarian one too. Matt Zwolinski is co-author of The Individualists, Radicals, Reactionaries, and the Struggle for the Soul of Libertarianism we spoke last month. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please, and thank you for listening.